this case, because they called them all Newfoundland. The Americas looked like, oh, let's see what's up over there. And Philippe was like, well, you know your soldiers not finna mess with you like that, uh, King Louis. You already owe them money. They worn out from, for, from fighting. They're not finna go over there and just work for free. Because you already owe them back pay. But now what you could possibly do, I think what you should do, send send some prisoners over there. Matter of fact, I'll even go through and start handpicking them and set up the program. So France did the exact same thing. All right. While the English system was able to utilize the private trade in labor to keep state costs to a minimum, the policy had its flip sides. Flip side, okay? So even in the prison system today and the U.S., don't they go back and forth between privatization of the prisons and state-ran Hmm. Convicts were a potentially lucrative commodity as long as they were fit, young, and skilled. Sale of the elderly and lame was unlikely to be profitable, and thus contractors were naturally selective about who they would take. The Transportation Act of 1717 contained a number of provisions designed to address these deficiencies. A proper sentencing structure was introduced. Seven years for non-capital offenses and 14 for felons reprieved from the gallows. Contractors, I'm sorry, contracts for the shipment of convicts to the Americas were henceforth awarded to merchants who were required to post a bond that was reclaimable on production of a certificate of disembarkation. A condition of the contract was that all convicts sentenced to transportation were to be shipped within an agreed time scale. Thus, the contractor could no longer pick and choose. In return, the treasury paid a small subsidy for each transportee embarked. Okay. From 1718 to 1776, some 50,000 convicts were sold into servitude in the Americas, chiefly in the colonies of Virginia and Maryland. Did this say they went to the coast of Africa to buy people and brought them back to the Americas? No, that's not what this said. It's been pretty consistent on what they're saying. Like all of these documentations that we have gone into, are pretty consistent 
on where the labor force slash slave force came from. Okay. Now that's not saying that there weren't Africans who were in the Americas as what they are calling slaves. But it was really labor. But again, not in the volume that they are claiming. They accounted for one in every four migrants from the British Isles to the American colonies over the same period. The American Revolution formally brought the trade in convents to a halt. While transportation worked because there was a demand for labor in the Americas, it was also a powerful shaper of British and American opinion. Famously, Benjamin Franklin suggested that Americans should make the trade in convents reciprocal of sending rattlesnakes to populate the parks of London. But British perception of the American colonists were also colored by transportation. Adam Smith depicted the colonists as the uh, refuse of jails of Europe and Dr. Johnson as a race of convicts who ought to be thankful for anything we shall allow them short of a hanging. Mm -hmm. Now I want to remind you all when Benjamin Franklin also complained, everywhere he looked, there was black and he went all around the world Naming the blacks. Named Europe. He named Asia. And the Americas. And he said there was very little. Which was whites. Okay. So once again. This is telling you where the slave labor came from. It is telling you. Okay? And this is just the early labor. Because he's going to get to the part of white folks becoming labor as well. All right? And that's not even saying that white folks still weren't traded in between there. I know of one instance that they were traded earlier, but I'm going to say that for a separate podcast for something else. It's going to uh, blend into something else. Transportation was particularly unpopular with free workers as competition with cheap convict labor lowered colonial wage rates. And that's exactly what Ben Franklin was complaining about. In the years immediate preceding the... Um, so in other words, just to be clear, Ben Franklin, he didn't want, he, he, he didn't want African slaves. 
In the years immediately preceding the revolution, artesian non-importation movements began to appear in the major seaports. At the same time, the falling cost of a transatlantic passenger undercut the rationale for the wider indentured system. You mean them African slave trades? Okay, but, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll continue. Increasingly, migrant workers were able to pay for their passage up front and were therefore less inclined to sign away labor rights in order to cover the cost of getting there. Okay, and so even with this transatlantic passage, it uh, passage it also includes Africans, which was very little, as well as um, the prisoners, because the prisoners, the price is going to be lower. They preferred migrant workers. Increasingly, migrant workers were able to pay for their passage up front and were therefore less inclined to sign away labor rights in order to cover the cost of getting there. While transportation may have been curtailed by the revolution, its demise was accompanied by general decline and ultimate cessation of the whole. North European transatlantic trade and indentured labor. In other words, po politics aside, the days of transportation to the American colonies were numbered. Okay, so let's see, let's see. Did he give a year back up here? Okay, I thought he gave a year. But he'll give it in this next one. The impact of the revolution on transportation was abrupt. No convicts were sent to the Americas between 1777 and 1782. And while a few were dispatched from Ireland in 1780s, the policy was soon abandoned. Instead, the British turned elsewhere. <coughs> okay, so... Okay, so even up here, talk on it. Sorry, y'all. So even up here when they're talking about, okay, I was just trying to get a little benefit of the doubt, but I should have shut on up because he covered it. In the years immediately preceding the revolution, um, non-importation movement began to appear in the major seaports. At the same time, the falling cost of the transatlantic passage undercut the rationale for the wider perspective. So in other words, they were solely talking about um, European prison prisoners being transported to the Americas versus indentured servants. Okay. In 1780, the Dutch entered the American Revolutionary War, threatening British slaving interests in West Africa. The 13 British forts located between Senegambia and Waida were manned by just 554 disease-written troops. There was also a shortage of laborers and canoe men employed by the Company of Merchants trading out of Africa. Okay. Competition between Europeans were, was particularly fierce on the Gold Coast, 
where there were also 12 forts in the Dutch hands. Some of the rivals' establishments were so close to each other that they were in range of each other's guns. So they're telling you that um, the slave trade, uh, what they're calling the slave trade, over in Africa, just trade, period, was really, really competitive. Now let's continue. The European hold on these tiny enclaves was, to say the least, tenuous. As the company admitted, it is necessary to keep black men of power in our pay that we may live at peace with the natives who would otherwise molest us knowing we have sufficient power to protect ourselves. In order to shore up defenses, two independent companies were formed out of 350 convicts reprieved on condition of overseas service. These were distributed among several forts from the island of Gori in Senegambia to Cape Coast Castle. A further 40 convicts were transported to the following year on the Dem Kaiser, a slaving vessel hired for the occasion. In this, the British were merely following European practice. The Portuguese had long transported convicts to Africa. Huh? In this, the British were merely following European practices. practice. The Portuguese had long transported convicts to Africa. Okay? So remember back up here. Bear with me. Sorry. Hope this not making you too dizzy. <laughs> All right, I'm sorry in advance. And I think the visual helps us big time. So bear with me. Remember up here when he was talking about the Portuguese were the first to do it. The Portuguese were the first to do it. So they were also sending folks to Africa and then folks coming out of Africa. All right. Let's get back. Sorry again if I'm making you dizzy with this. <laughs> All right, we're almost there. We're almost there. They have been used to construct and man the first fortifications on the Gold Coast in the 15th century. So the Portuguese sent their convicts over to Africa. To build forts. In the 1500s. This was a policy driven by the fearful reputation of the region. Death rates among Europeans in tropical Africa were so great that it was expected that as many as that as many 50% would die within a year of arrival. As the popular rhyme would have it, beware, beware, the bite of Benin. For one that comes out, there's 40 go in. 
it was thought to be morally just that convicts should be sent to such zones in order to spare the lives of others. All agreed, however, that the experiment with the independent companies was a total disaster. Of those who survived the ravages of disease, some deserted to the Dutch. Others seized vessels or escaped into the interior. Those that remained traded their equipment together with the fort fitting. They literally took the doors off their hinges in return for alcohol supplied by the West African dealers. So in other words, they say, oh, MF, you think you're going to sit up here and work me to death on this African coast? This equipment that you gave us to build these forts, we going to strip all of this bad boy stuff down. We out of here. The company had protests about the scheme from the start. They were concerned that the deployment of convict labor would undermine European authority by demonstrating that whites could be enslaved as well as Africans. Similar fears may have played a role in the racial segregation of the Australian and Indian Ocean penal settlements. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So again, when we talk about the transatlantic slave trade, it was a world wide system that consisted of convicts prisoners primarily from Europe that was shipped across the world okay and also shipped among the different colonies around the world So meaning you also had laborers coming off the coast of Africa in those particular colonies going around the world also to other colonies. Okay. And now they're introducing you, telling you that also that meant Yeah, white people can be enslaved also, okay? Now, before I get into just a little bit of supplement of white people being enslaved, and those of you that rock with me, you know this is not new. Before I get into that, I want you to remember who held the seat of power when these European kingdoms were ruled by black, quote, quote, nobility, So the Stuart line was black. King Charles Nim was black. Queen Elizabeth was black. Louis Nim, black. All of the Europeans were black. 
So the prisoners of war initially were black. Let's go into the white slaves. So this is a very good book. It is an easy read. Um, it's called They Were White and They Were Slaves, The Untold History of the Enslavement of Whites in Early America by Michael A. Hoffman II. All right, so um, uh, this is on page 14. <clears throat> the Memoirs of Paris Labatt, 1693 to 1705, page 125. Even blacks refer to the white forced laborers in the colony as white slaves. And then he goes on to describe the conditions. Uh, this is on page 17. The English historian William Cobbett stated in 1836, the starving agricultural laborers of southern England are worse off than American Negroes. We heard the same thing about the differences between the black, Irish, and Jamaica, and the white Irish in Jamaica. We heard the exact same thing, that the conditions were worse for the white laborers. When in 1834, English farm worker in Dorset tried to form a union in order to preserve ourselves, our wives, and our children from starvation, they were shipped into slavery in Australia for this crime. So this is lining right up to what this author is speaking on. The, the situation of white factory workers was no better. Robert Owen declared in 1840, the working classes of Great Britain are in a worse condition than any slave in any country in any period of the world's history. Okay. All right. So again, we see the word factories. We saw that factories when we did the um, podcast on the African Royal Company, on how they had factories. You know, factories to manufacture goods. Yeah, uh, same as today. But they had indentured servants slash convicted convicts working in said factories. Uh-huh. And so now you know that label of slavery is really about prisoners of war, convicted felons, black folk, white folk. It wasn't about race. 
It was about serving these European empires so their conquests of other indigenous peoples' lands could be successful. They were also worried, rightfully, as it turned out, that the actions of the convicts might undermine the local operation of the slave trade. Some West African middlemen refused to supply slaves to the company after being swindled for their transportees. Despite this, the unpromising start, <coughs> the British persisted with the idea by the Treaty of Versailles, which formally brought the war of the American Revolution to a close. The British acquired exclusive rights to the, Gambian, the Gambia River in order to secure the territory it was proposed to send convicts to McCarthy Island, about 320 kilometers from the river mouth. In anticipation of the scheme, the island was purchased from local chiefs for 1,000, I'm assuming that's pounds. The plan was abandoned, however, after a select committee concluded that it would be a to, to a big, sorry y'all, I'm getting tongue-tied, a huge to a death sentence, despite recommendations that the prisoners be issued with Synconia or Jesuit bark to protect to protect them from the ravages of malaria. Having given up on the idea of using convict labor to to facilitate slave trading, this is pretty consistent on what slave trading really was. The British explored the possibility of employing penal labor to set up a base at Das Voltas Bay in present-day Nambia. A vessel dispatched to survey the site reported that it was a desert and totally inhospitable. The British turned instead to Botany Bay, a potentially strategic deep water anchor on the edge of the Pacific. Distance from the metropole may have had its appeal. While the increase in the volume of shipping across the Atlantic made it possible for convicts to return from the American colonies, Australia was altogether more isolated. Banishment there, even for those on a seven-year sentence, would for all intents and purposes be for life. It thus might be uh, construed as a punishment that the poor would fear. Okay. Yet, as can be seen from figure three, transportation to Australia remained intermittent for the next quarter of a century. This is curious for the standard explanation for the Botany Bay decision was that it was a measure taken out of desperate desperation to alleviate the buildup in the number of convicts incommodously accommodated in hoax of thymes and solent estuaries. Yet, 
after the first, second, and third fleets had been dispatched to Australia, there was a strange lull in the number of convicts transported. The simple explanation for this was that war again intervened. Okay, so he's just here showing you uh, somebody had drew or sketched uh, a convict, or it's it's literally says prison ship in Port Harbor, convicts going abroad. Not slaves, convicts. And again, Australia is consistent with that. This is known in Australia. But what he is revealing to the rest of us as that the transatlantic slave, what they're calling slave trade, was really about the transatlantic prison trade or prisoner trade or shipping out your convicts around the world to your different colonies. Okay? Whenever Britain was at war, the number of convicts transported declined, which that makes sense. For one, shipping was more expensive. Not only was there the risk of capture, but the diminishing supply of sailors that resulted from increased naval recruitment drove up wages. There were similar effects on land. Wars were periods of fuller employment where increased military recruitment Soaked up the surplus labor. So again, there you have it. This was particularly so that passing, I'm sorry, this was particularly so after the passing of the Press Act in 1704 that specifically targeted able-bodied men who did not have lawful employment or calling or visible means for their maintenance and livelihood. Fewer unemployment meant that fewer crimes were committed. And that's interesting because even today, when they look at crime and they look at the underlying root cause of crime, they always link it to employment. So that's interesting. There were other subtle effects too. uh, Convict labor had its uses during times of conflict. We have already seen how the entry of the Dutch into the American Revolutionary War spawned a plan to send a detachment of convict soldiers to Africa. Uh Uh-huh. Just want to put that in there yet again. This was no novel scheme. At least as early as 1766 prisoners, especially those with military experience, were reprieved on condition of overseas services. Mm -hmm. Yep, so Dutch. Dutch shipping. Convicts. To Africa. Mm-hmm. All right.
Units raised in this manner were invariably sent to theaters characterized by high disease rates. This was really transportation in all, but name. The minimum period of service was seven years, and death rates were certainly higher than among amongst convicts dispatched to either the Americas or Australia colonies. Okay, so in other words, you get shipped over to Africa, baby. You just might as well. What they said was a fifty percent death rate. So you had a 50% chance of living. But if you were shipped to the Americas or Australia colonies, you had a better chance of living. So logically, where would the highest number of labor, even if you want to put slave labor, come from? Would it come from the most risky place? Africa? So that doesn't matter if it's coming or going. Or would it be coming from Europe to America, Europe to Australia? I mean, this is simple economics, folks. But let's continue. Units raised in this manner were invariably sent to theaters uh, characterized by high disease rates. This was really transportation in all, but namely, uh, but let me read that again. Units raised in this manner were invariably sent to theaters characterized by high disease rates. This was really transportation in all but name. The minimum period of service was seven years and death rates were certainly higher than among convicts dispatched to either the American or Australian colonies. So in other words, Africa was higher. Okay. The use of this device increased during the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. Buckley estimated that around 20% of the regular British army in the Windward and Leeward Islands between 1799 and 1802 was composed of civil and military offenders. Others were sent to Africa. Hmm. The African Corps established in 1800 and based at Gori took over the role of the ill-fated independent companies that were finally disbanded in 1784. While the regiment went through several title changes, it was fairly long-lived. As late as 1822, a draft of convict volunteers were sent to the Cape to join the newly styled Royal African Colonial Corps. So, seems like what the author has described is this is a reverse of the African slave trade. From Europe to Africa. 
Uh-huh. Let's continue. All right. So in this particular uh, graph, he gives the number of convicts transported and strength of the British Army, 1690 to 1820. And he's giving you the source of where he got this information. So you can see. Um, wow, you can see the War of Spain, it went up. Not too much for the War of Austrian. The Seven-Year War, I to be honest, I expected it to be higher in the Seven-Year War. But maybe because that was really a, a world war. Okay, American Revolution and the Revolutionary Wars was high. Um, oh, the, the Napoleonic War was the highest. Wow. Okay. So it's showing you the number of soldiers mobilized. So as high, the highest number of soldiers mobilized was 400,000, and that was during the Napoleonic War, 1803 to 1815. So the number of folk transported, let's see what was the highest. Okay, so they're saying the American Revolutionary, the American Revolution, 1775 to... Uh, the 1830. So a little bit over 200,000. Okay. All right. Now remember, number of convict, uh, convicts. So prisoners of war! Okay, so let's continue. That's a that's a great graph. Did an absolute wonderful job with this. Which would make sense. Sorry, I don't mean to make y'all dizzy. Which would make sense. Because if you're going around colonizing indigenous people's stuff, or if you're fighting with these other European kingdoms on, on territories, that you have either colonized, you're trying to defend your colonies, or you're trying to take over somebody else's colony. But make no mistake, it's not yours to begin with. It's the indigenous people of that land. Yeah, you're going to have, you're going to be dispatching troops. So the colonists that are already there and their convicts, that they already got stationed there, plus the indigenous people that's already there, they're going to be warring with the new set of colonists coming into play. And then whoever wins that war going to package up some more convicts and ship them to other colonies. Okay? So either they ship them to other colonies I don't even have to say that. They ship them to other colonies around the world. Let's just make it simple. 
So again, the transatlantic slave trade was not exclusively about Africa. Let's continue. Convict labor had its uses within the British Isles too. While often thought of as emergency detention centers, the hoax are probably better seen as mobile labor deport depots. The convicts on board them were used to load supplies onto warships. This explained the origins of shot drill, an exercise performed in prisons in the 19th century. As Benny and Mayhew described in the 1860s, shot was moved from one side of the yard to the other through the successive hands of a chain prisoners. When the pile at one end was depleted, the exercise was reversed. The two journalists concluded that it was impossible to imagine anything more ingeniously useless than this form of hard labor. Yet, in its original form, the exercise had a very practical use. It was employed to load shot onto men of war. Convicts also constructed coastal defenses and helped to dredge shipping canals. Hmm. So who was building them forts um, around the world? And canals. Hmm. Convicts? That's interesting. So convicts with military background were building the forts, which makes sense. And then they also build shipping channels or canals. Makes sense. They also went to the colonies to perform other labor. So farming in the Americas, cotton, makes sense. Sugar cane, makes sense. So let's continue. While few prisoners were transported during periods of warfare, the cessation of hostilities invariably brought change circumstances. The rapid demobilization of large numbers of soldiers and sailors led to a decrease in the demand for convict labor in the docks and an increased supply in the form of newly convicted criminals. It had been the increase in convictions that had followed the ending of the War of Spanish Succession that had led to the Transportation Act of 1717. So there you have it. So they're telling you that they were getting their convicted labor, you know, that convicted labor that fueled the transatlantic slave trade from war. Okay, but before they do that, because, you know, they got to put in writing what they going to do and get somebody to approve what they going to do. That's what the Transportation Act of 1717, that's why it was created. 
Each successive, successive demobilization resulted in higher levels of unemployment and increase in crime and subsequent arrests. So in other words, if you got skilled prisoners of war that you're telling them you need to go over, you need to work this, work the docks, work docks, work this, work this, work that, then your regular population, you're putting them out of jobs. Okay? So they always link unemployment with crime. That's even in the statistics today. Few convicts were initially sent to Australia because the outbreak of hostilities with France in 1792 ensured that there were few to send. With the exception of the brief peace following the Treaty of Amenines in 1802, Britain remained at war until 1815. The demobilization that followed, however, was an unprecedented scale. Up until this point, Britain's Antipodean settlements remained geographically restricted to the Cumberland Plain, Plain, sorry, the Cumberland Plain and mouth of the Hunter River in New South Wales, and Tamar and Durant estuaries in Van Diemen's Land, uh, uh, Diamond's Land, okay, remember that's Tasmania, whereas transportation to, okay, and I'm going to get there in a minute, the Americas have been conducted as a private trade. The lack of prior European settlement in Australia necessitated a greater deal of government involvement. Okay, so shout out to him. Shout out to Maxwell Stewart. Uh, this this is excellent, by the way, Maxwell Stewart. But he's telling you that the America's trade was all privatized. So the private prison labor, a.k.a. that they call transatlantic slave trade, was all privatized. But when they were stocking labor... For uh, Australia, the government had to get involved. Okay? All right. So up here, and he's giving you uh, New South Wales. Okay, so Cumberland Plain. I don't know if uh, Hunter Valley, I'm assuming it is, is a part of that also. And then this is Tasmania. Okay, so he's even telling you where they were pulling people from for the area of Tasmania. Ciao. Let's continue. It took direct charge of the shipping of convicts to the Antipodes and the cost of maintaining the prisoners while they remain under sentence. While some of the costs of this were offset by the work performed by convicts, sentences were often shortened in order to relieve the government of the cost of maintaining felons. Chow, wasn't that the case? And um, when they were saying, when the state run, when the state runs prisons, 
when they're funding them and all of that jazz, that sometimes the costs get so much for the state that they start shortening uh, sentences. So I just find it's really interesting as we go through this that they use some of the same logic today regarding the prison system. While some of the costs of this were offset by the, okay, we, uh, maybe I didn't read that. I'll just read it again. While some of the costs of this were offset by the work performed by the convicts, sentences were often shortened in order to relieve the government of the cost of maintaining felons. Once freed, former convicts were provided with land in order to encourage them to become self-sufficient. Whereas there were occasionally, occasional brutal punishment, the conditions experienced by the majority of the transported were surprisingly benign. The influx of fresh arrivals post the Napoleonic War precipitated huge changes. In 1817, John Thomas Big, a former deputy judge advocate of the slave colony of Trinidad, was commissioned by the British government to write a report on the state of Tasmanian Island, but now back then it was Van Diamond's Land and New South Wales. A critic of the allocation of small blocks of land to former convicts. Big thought that the future of the colony lay in pastoralism. So blood wanted to bring the cloth of the church up into it. He recommended that access to land should henceforth be restricted to free immigrants with capital. He also advocated an extension of the existing system of assigning convict labor to free settlers. Under this arrangement, the settler was responsible for clothing, feeding, and accommodating the convict in return for their labor. Settler could not physically punish their charges, but they could order them before a magistrate bench, a magistrate's bench. Those found guilty were punished by the state. Big recommended a huge increase in the practice of assignment, although he argued that the recipients of convict labor should be restricted to those of means. Assignment was cheap. Big calculated that it would save the government 24 pounds and 10 shillings for every convict so disposed of. In order to keep this semi-privatized prison force in line, he also advocated an extension in the number of government-run state punishments. Okay, so uh, uh, old boy Big is just proposing a mix between privatization and government sponsor of prisoners. But again, this is explaining the transatlantic slave trade really was about a labor trade using prison labor or convicted people that were convicted to a sentence. 
So in this case, he's de they're describing, they're trying to set up how the labor, the prison labor was going to work from um, from Europe and specifically Newcastle or Cumberland Plain area to um, Tasmanian Island. Okay? So he's saying let the settlers cover the costs and all of that jazz. Let them deal with the costs. But they can't issue out sentences or punishments or any of that. If the convict gets out of line, they need to go back before the um, court system or the magistrate's bench to get uh, sentencing. All right? Okay, so here it's showing the convicts at work in Van Diamond's land gathering that harvest. Okay. All right. Big's recommendation ushered in what became known as the assignment system, a multi-layered approach to convict management. The majority of newly arrived prisoners were assigned to settlers. As a reward for good conduct, convicts could be provided with a ticket of leave, which enabled them to work for a wage. On the other hand, those who were found guilty of committing further offenses could be sentenced by a magistrate's bench or a higher court to term of punishment in a road party, chain gang, or penal station. Okay, so pretty much just summing up what we said. All right. Okay. A similar system operated for female convicts, except instead of being sent to road parties and penal stations, those returned for punishment were housed in female factories where they were divided into different classes according to conduct. The arrangement was popular with the Tory administration as it was cheap to administer, fostered colonial growth, and could be expected to be feared by British and Irish working class. So again, being pretty specific on where the transatlantic slave force is coming from, which is really prisoners of war and convicts. So in this case, he's on, he, now he's getting into details of Australia. And just like it was for the rest of the world, including Africa, same hell true in Australia. And now we should understand why when they talk about the African transatlantic slave trade, and they only relegated to the west coast of Africa, that is because that is where the British, Dutch, and Portugal empires had agreements with those said African nations to do business. Either they had agreements to do business, 
or they fought wars in the case of uh, Portico, fought wars and set up colonies. So just to let that sink in on the African slave trade, why it is delegated to West Africa only, it is because those European empires either had contracts to do business with those said West African nations, or in the case of Portico, they fought a war in those specific areas, and I think Portico, it was North Africa, and they had colonies. So that means within that African slave trade, they were bringing over their prisoners to Africa to work, to build ports, etc., etc., and work in their factories. So again, those European nations were bringing over their convicts over to Africa to build ports and to work in those African factories. Because remember, in the case of the English African Royal Company, we know that they were trading in goods as well as labor. Okay, so they were bringing over their own folks and then other folks were also being dispatched, labor was being dispatched to their other colonies. So that labor could have also been, I'm sure there were, African chiefs who were selling their people to those European kingdoms. And either they were working right there in one of the uh, factories or they shipped them to other colonies around the world. And in the case of Portugal, they shipped folk to um, Brazil. Although they shipped them to other places too, but a high number of Brazilians came from the coast of Africa to work in the sugar plantation. But you also have to keep in mind that some of those folks, them Africans, could have also been some of their own prisoners. Okay? In the case of the Americas, again, very little Africans. Very little Africans. Because the British system, they used... Europeans, specifically black Europeans, 
prisoners of war slash convicts. So let's continue. Under the assignment system, the number of convicts transported to New South Wales and Van Diamond's land, which is Tasmania, peaked in 1833 when nearly 7,000 were landed on the fatal shores in a single year. Therefore, the num thereafter, the numbers were wound back as transportation came under sustained attack from first from critics in the British Isle and then later from a colonial-based anti-transportation movement. Hmm. So it sounds like uh, what they lab label in as anti-slavery movement. Hmm. Okay. But, you know, we'll continue. The election in 1830 of the first Holy Whig government since 1783 marked a substantial shift in government policy. The Whigs were in favor of assisted migration, sympathetic to the penal reform movement, avowed opponents of slavery. Now remember, the U.S. had a Whig party also. And that Whig party was also members of the Whig party were also helped in establishing the colony of Liberia. And that was trying to get, they call freed blacks, which now we should know were freed black Europeans to go back, not even back, to go to Africa to set up and main a colony in Liberia. Okay? So when they talk about the Whigs were in favor of assisted migration, sympathetic to the penal reform movement and uh, avowed opponents of slavery. This is not new. This is exactly what happened in the Americas. The supporters of all three causes view transportation as the best problematic. In their view, the presence of convicts made it difficult to promote the Australian colonies as a suitable designation for free working class immigrants. Was this not the same complaint from Benjamin Franklin in America? Yes, it was. Because it's the same script, it's the same formula. The assignment system was clearly at odds with the principles of the penitentiary with its emphasis on non-physical punishment and there was more than a whiff of slavery about the manner in which convicts were assigned to private individuals. So again, they're telling you that these convicts were put in the position of slaves. Okay? 
that this transportation system was really a system of slavery based on the treatment, the conditions. It wasn't about reform, none of that. Okay? So hence why today they've totally changed the definition of what slavery meant. That everybody came from Africa. So everybody in what we're calling today the United States came from Africa. Everybody in South America came from Africa. Everybody in the Caribbeans came from Africa. And all black folks in Europe came from Africa too. So if you are black, you came from Africa. And let's ex exclude Caucasian slash whites from being a part of this process because they were the ones doing the enslavement. But yet the records state that white folks became slaves also. They were also sentenced as convicts to said colonies. And we know in the case of Jamaica, which we can pretty much not even assume because we too have two accounts, then one in Jamaica, it tells you that the first ones to hit Jamaica, they were black folk black European and black Irish because they had to put a law on the books at a later date to let white folks come in as servants and the white folks were treated worst. And then you had Ben Franklin on the mainland in America's saying, look, don't send no more black folks over here. Don't send them over here. And he was not saying just from Africa. He named everywhere I look, it's black people all around the world. And we also know through someone's journals and account that the Stuart dynasty, mm, it was said to not mention their race. So in other words, we know that it was whitewashed. As we show you evidence of the original pictures of those European dynasties were black people. Okay? All right, so let's look at this system. All right, so it's saying it is no accident that the numbers transported went into permanent decline in that same year, 1834, as slavery was abolished within the British Empire. While the committee assembled to inquire into transportation recommended that it should also be abolished in favor of the expanded use of penitentiaries, the government balked 
at the cost and comparison. So it is clearly telling you right here that the abolishment of slavery in 1834, they were really talking about abolishment of convict labor. So in other words, look, y'all sitting up here, you got a system of quote, quote, slavery, what we're calling it today, convicted labor and prisoners of war was what it was. That needs to stop. You need to build prisons or penitentiaries to house your convicts and your prisoners of war. And the government like, look, 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 listen here, Nat. That's too expensive. We don't want to foot the bill for that, nor the responsibility. All right. So let's look at um, the post-big convict system from 1823. This is when they came up with it. So prior to 1823, Prior to 1823, the transatlantic slave trade was prison labor. So again, prior to 1823, the worldwide transatlantic slave trade was prison labor. All right, so bigs or big saying, okay, for the men, the gallows, penal stations, chain gangs, road parties, assigned to private settlers, ticket of leave, conditional pardon, full pardon. So these are, this is the new way that he proposed to deal with prisoners. Okay? So, the gallows, penal station, chain gangs, road parties, those are all footing the bill to England. Soon as they get assigned to a private settler, that's on the settler. But in order to get a pardon and all of that, they still had to go through the British court system. So this is a mixture of public and private on how they're going to handle prisoners. Okay? So again, the transatlantic slave system was they used prison labor. Slash prisoners of wars. Okay, so for the women, gallows, factory crime class, factory second class, factory first class. So all of those are England is footing the bill for it. Then when you uh, get to assign to private settler, Ticket to leave, condition parting, full pardon. Transportation to New South Wales was abandoned in 1840, but continued to 
Van Diamond's land, albeit in a moderate form, a modified form. Okay, so even they're telling you even here that they use uh this a system in New South Wales. So even New South Wales, fam. They they um had convicted slave labor as well. The newly introduced probation system attempted to allow the deployment of convict labor with the key principles of penitentiary management. Yep. All convicts were to henceforth undergo a period of probationary labor on the roads of arrival to Australia. Once the prisoner had emerged from this probationary stage, they could be hired by private individuals for a nominal wage, a practice designed to distance transportation from the charge that it was merely a form of slavery in disguise. From the outset, the scheme was a disaster. The supply of assigned servants the supply of assigned servants was reduced as the newly arrived convicts were fed into the probation station. As a consequence, wage rates climbed for the first time since the early 1820s. Then, just as the effect of the 1840s global recession hit Van Diamond's land, the first cohort of probationers emerged onto the labor market, which was as a consequently quickly glutted. While the number of convicts transported had gone into sharp decline in the 1830s, the trend was now temporarily reversed. Okay, so they're just simply talking supply and demand of labor. As the recession deepened in Britain, more were sent they piled up in probation stations and the hastily constructed hiring depots that housed those unable to secure a contract with a private employer. In this climate, many colonists joined the clamor of voices from the British Isle calling for an end to transportation. There was particularly anger that the colonies were expected to pay the cost of the constructing and running of the probation stations, but receive little by way of economic benefit. Transportation was increasingly seen as a morally polluting institution that had to be abolished in order to protect the reputation of the colony. Uh-huh. So was it really to protect the reputation of the colony or they were tired of this up and down of the cost. They were tired of it. Sometimes it's profitable based on economic conditions. Then other times it not, it's not profitable. But in either case, the colony had to bear that cost. So was it really a moral issue or was it really an economic issue? I'm just saying. As in America, in the run-up to the revolution, the embryonic trade union movement played an important part in the campaign, attempting to protect free wage rates 
from the threat of competition from cheap, unfree labor. Despite vigorous opposition, the government pressed on with transportation largely because of the expense associated with the construction of penitentiaries in the British Isle and the knowing and the knowledge, sorry, that few convicts returned from exile in the colonies. So in other words, British government like, look, I ain't trying to hear that foolishness you sitting up here talking. Once these convicts lead off this shore, player, we don't give a so-and-so what happened. That's y'all's responsibility to run them colonies properly and it to be profitable. Now, you didn't set up here and whine that you need labor. You done set up here and whine that you need labor. And now we providing you with labor. Now you want to complain on how we're sending you the labor and how it's impacting your colony. We don't care nothing about that. And while you at it, don't forget you owe me your payment or your taxes off of the profits that you generating off them colonies. In in an attempt to mollify colonial opposition, convicts were ordered to serve the first half of their sentence in Britain before being removed to the colonies, already bearing a ticket of leave. So like I said, they really didn't care, but okay, we hear y'all rumbling this, that, and the third. We'll have them serve half the time over here, then go over there. Now remember... This is still talking about the convicts coming up out of um, Europe. Okay? So even though this is specifically talking about Australia, but it was just telling you same thing was happening in the uh, back during the American times too. It was the discovery of gold on the Australian mainland However, that finally ended transportation to Van Diamond's land. There seemed little point in giving free passage to prisoners to a place a short distance removed from the epic center of a gold rush. The last vessel arrived in 1853. Transportation lingered on in Western Australia where it had been introduced in 1815, I'm sorry, 1850, as a response to chronic labor shortage. So in other words, wait, whoa, 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 wait, wait, you you trying to tell me it's gold? Oh, wait, 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 wait a minute now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, you found gold? Oh yeah, hold up, that, that's a separate, that's more profitable. All right, we, we gonna stop sending y'all to convicts. Because uh, this goal, oh yeah, um, we're we going to handle that. But in the meantime, Western Australia, y'all still need labor? You got a chronic labor shortage? Okay, get ready to get these convicts. Convicts also continue to be sent to Bermuda. 
until 1863 when the last prisoners were returned to the British Isle and to Gibraltar until the hoax there were broken up in 1874. So once again, they're telling you where this labor was coming from. Okay. And in the case of Bermuda, in 1863, they even returned the last prisoners to where? The British Isles in Gibraltar. By then, the only British convict settlement that remained was on the Adaman Island. All right. Evaluating British transportation policy. In some ways... <coughs> Excuse me. In some ways, British transportation policy remained remarkably consistent over time. The minimum sentence of seven years, first fixed in the 17th century, remained in place until at least the second half of the 19th century. As we have seen, this was originally introduced for economic rather than penal reasons. The collapse of the transatlantic market and indentured servants in the late 18th and 19th century forced the government to play a more proactive role in the process of shipping felons overseas. So I do not want us to take this sentence lightly. The collapse of the transatlantic market and indentured servants in the late 1800s and early 19th century. So didn't they tell you slavery was abolished in the United States in 1865? Hmm. So in other words, and remember this was worldwide. He showed you the transporting of the convicts was worldwide. Okay, so this private market was shut down of transporting indentured servants around the world, and now the government had to be more involved in the process of shipping felons overseas. But again, where is the folks coming from that went into indentured servitude slash slavery? They were the convicts. Okay? So whether you were convicted of local crimes in Europe, in Europe or if you were a prisoner of war, Same difference. All right. There is more than a hint, however, that the West African experiment in the 1780s may have been in part motivated by an attempt to co-opt the slave trade into performing this role. Having disposed of its convict charges to a number of different forts, 
the Dan Kaiser took on board a cargo of slaves for the sale in the Caribbeans. When opportunity arose after the Napoleonic Wars, the British government did its best to privatize transportation once more, dramatically expanding the number of convicts assigned to private service. Okay, so talk on it. I hate when it does that. Uh, okay, I have to put something in here uh, to get this out of this. Sorry, bear with me. Bear with me. Okay, come on out of there. Let me highlight. All right. So you see where it's saying um, the Napoleonic Wars... So having disposed of, his con disposed of its convict charges to a number of different forts, the Den Kaiser took on board a cargo of slaves for sale in the Caribbean. Okay, so again, prisoners of war. Even if you want to say convicts, whatever the case, really both. When the opportunity arose after the Napoleonic Wars, the British government did its best to privatize transportation once more, dramatically expanding the number of convicts assigned to private service. It is significant that the man upon whose recommendation these changes were made, Commissioner Big, had formerly served in the British Caribbean and had firsthand experience of operating of plantation slavery. When assignment was abolished following the intervention of the Whig governments of the 1830s, the economic rationale for transportation was comprised and colonial opposition to the practice mounted. Oh, shoot. All right. So just to point out that the West African experiment in 1780s. Okay? So this even, once again, is letting you know that the transatlantic slave trade was not exclusively coming from West Africa. This is giving you a specific date that they experimented with slave trading, a.k.a. convict trading, in West Africa in 1780. So that meant, just like his other graph showed you, that slaves in the 1600s and the 1700s, what they're calling slaves, was not coming from West Africa. Was coming from Europe. So those black folk that they are labeling as Africans in the 1600s and 1700s, we're black Europeans. And the Africans that did so happen make it over 
to the Americas and the Caribbeans. They came at a later date, the 1780s. And it wasn't successful. But let's continue. Were the critics of the transportation right to argue that it amounted to a species of slavery? The short answer is no. The children of convicts, for example, were not born the chattel of others. Convict transportation, however, had many similarities with other systems of unfree labor, especially indentured and some particular peculiar twist of its own. As Evan and Thorpe point out, it was not in a master's interest to beat a slave beyond the point that it was profitable to do so. For a minority of prisoners sent to colonial penal stations to undergo further punishment, this was certainly not the case. They were deliberately deprived of labor-saving devices such as draft animals in order to ensure that the work hurt Here, punishment was considered an output in its own right. In an era where uh, penal reformers denounced the use of the lash and leg irons as um, instruments of reform, transportation was inevitably viewed as an outmoded form of correction. Its critics, however, were also concerned that the weight of punishment fell unevenly on convict bodies. As the Select Committee on Transportation reported in 1838, it was in master's interest to treat skilled convicts better than unskilled. This was an accurate observation. Unskilled convicts were disproportionately represented among those sentenced to be flogged or who served in time in roll gangs, chain gangs, and penal stations. Transportation also had peculiar impacts on men and women. After the big report, there was an increase in the demand for the labor of female convicts who were required to service the homes of wealthy free settlers. In order to increase the supply of bonded labor, the state reversed its pre-big policy of encouraging marriage as a way of reducing the number of female convicts supported by the government. Okay. As Reed has shown, while nearly 45% of female convicts still under sentence were married in 1822, the proportion dropped to a little over 7% in the decades 1832 to 18, I'm sorry, to 1842. So by this time, uh, we also have to make note that the convicts um, were really a lot of white people coming over, okay? And we know this based on Jamaica's policy, and we know this also based on what Franklin, being Franklin, was saying. The shift was accompanied by disciplinary devices created to criminalize convicts' attempts to form de facto unions while under sentence. 
Convict servants who fell pregnant were sent to the house of correction or factory. After giving birth, mothers were permitted to wean their children. Therefore, they were separated, the convict being shifted to a separate yard to undergo a period of a six-month punishment. Okay, so this is telling you um, of the separation of mother and child during the mother's prison sentence on, in the colony. Okay? From children in the colonies during a prison sentence. All right? The most... This mostly consisted of labor at the wash tubs, servicing the laundry requirements of the state and nearby private households. Suitably, chastised female convicts were redeployed into assigned service, whereas their children were sent to what euphemistically known as orphan schools. Boom. So when we think about the orphans, who do we think about? White children. Let's continue. The factory was thus much more than a disciplinary institution. It was an ancillary device designed to facilitate the servicing of colonial middle class households. Transportation impacted upon household formation amongst former convicts in other ways too. While existing studies have linked as many as 90% of transported women to a colonial marriage, these marriages mostly occurred after sentence. The enforced delay lowered fertility rates, effectively reducing the size of ex-convict households. Initial explorations have suggested that the mean number of registered births may have been as low as one7 per former convict family. By contrast to women, only around one in four male convicts married after the arrival in Australia. The imbalance between the genders making it difficult for many to find partners. Of those that did marry, the majority were skilled men on short sentences. Did transportation do much harm to the colonies? There were many that thought it would. An early critic was Francis Bacon, who argued that it was, it was a shameful and unblessed thing to take the scum of people with whom you plant, and not only so, but it spoileth the plantation, for they will ever live like rolls and not fall to work. Yet the evidence suggests that the contrary was true. Transportation provided an important stimulus to colonial growth through the exploitation of the bodies of its convict charges and that of free workers who had to compete with the labor of transported prisoners. There is also little evidence that the colonies were transferred into dens of inequity as a result of the process. Quite the contrary, Tasmania, as Van Diemen's land was renamed in 1856, had remarkably low rates of serious crime 
and the second half of the 19th and 20th century. This despite the fact that a greater proportion of Tasmanians were transported either convicts or the descendants of convicts than elsewhere in Australia. Okay, so I am directly linking in this situation the Tasmanian population of convicts with uh, white people. A more detailed, and just to be clear, the population in the Americas, the first convicts in the Americas or prisoners of war were black people from Europe, okay? Some Africans, but that was very short-lived in the 1780s time frame. So white folks started coming in late 1700s, 1800s. And we know what happened in the 19th century. They decided to finally semi-tell the truth on that. Okay? And the white folks were coming from Europe as well as convicts. And in cases, they were snatching people off the street. You don't have a job? Oop, you out of here. Oh, you an orphan? You out of here. How did you become an orphan? Oh, your parents were taken out from war? You out of here. All right? This despite the fact uh, that a great proportion of Tasmanians were transported either convicts or the descendant of convicts than elsewhere in Australia. A more detailed analysis of recidivism rate in Western Australia has produced similar conclusions. While former convicts disproportionately found themselves up before the magistrate, few committed crimes that landed them in the higher courts. Tasmania and Western Australia were remarkably law-abiding places despite being tainted by the stain of convict labor. That is really, really interesting. Yet, this does not necessarily make the process less exploitative. Exactly. As Karl Marx recognized the philanthropic uh, object behind transportation was to create an artificial surplus in the labor market by drawing forced convict labor into comp uh, competition with free labor. So right here, Karl Marx is describing what they're calling today as the transatlantic slave system. So Karl Marx is describing the system and root reason for the transatlantic slave trade, a.k.a. prison labor. So I hope you all are getting a good idea of 
why what they are calling the African transatlantic slave trade is not accurate. This was a worldwide system. The convicts that were sent to Australia in the 19th century may have been comparatively well looked after compared with those transported in earlier sentences. Earlier centuries, rather, I apologize, which makes sense why um, if they were still doing it all the way up until in, in the uh, 19th century, that would make sense why they set up and told the truth about Australia. Death rates on convent vessels to the antipodes, for example, were remarkably low. Yet, despite fears that the process would lead to the founding of a criminal republic, the societies that convict labor helped to create were hierarchical. This was especially true of Western Australia and Van Diemen's Land, which is Tasmania, both of which were little affected by the wave of free migration and associated with the mid-century gold rush. The effective outcome of transportation was not so much that it enabled a new start for the convict, but it has existed the respectable migrant quest to establish a comfortable living. In conclusion, as Oxley and Meredith point out, there are parallels between the abolishment of transportation to the America colonies in the late 18th century and the demise of the punishment in the 19th century. Transportation worked because it supplied cheap labor to the colonies. Its success, however, contained the seeds of its demise. As both the American and Australian economies grew, they became destinations that were less calculated to produce fear within the ranks of the British and working class classes. The presence of convict labor also caused increased resentment as the size of the colonial free labor force increased. In the 19th century, these factors were exacerbated by the emergence of a powerful British base lobby that pillarized transportation as a form of free labor akin to slavery. Therefore, penal exile from the British Isles died a slow death maintained into the late 1860s only by the demand for labor in Western Australia and the naval docks in Bermuda and Gibraltar. Okay, so um, this is again by um, author Hamish Maxwell Stewart. And you can also, um, he's known for his work on convict transportation to Australia. Uh, we talked about his books earlier, Closing Hell Gates, The Death of a Convict Station, and American Citizen British Slaves, Yankee politi um, Political Prisoners in a Penial Colony. All right? But this particular one, uh, again, this is excellent, excellent work. <clears throat> I'm glad he put this together because he, he literally gave you the entire picture of the transatlantic slave trade. He gave you the entire picture. Okay? 
So again, this particular uh, article that he put together, convict transportation from Britain and Ireland from 1615 to 1870. And this is by Hamish Maxwell Stewart out of the University of Tasmania. Okay. All right, family. So I hope that you got a pretty good picture of what slavery was all about. So now these are the receipts on what I have been telling you over the years, what slavery really meant. It was a combination of prisoners of war, convicts, and people coming over on indentured servant contracts. So this gentleman, author Maxwell Stewart, laid it all out. He showed you that the transatlantic slave trade was a worldwide thing. This was a worldwide affair. This was not delegated to Africa. This was about the European empires using prison labor, and whether that's prisoners of war or not, as the source of labor for their colonies around the world. And specifically, when we want to talk about the African slave trade and why it is delegated to West Africa, in the case of the Americas, it is because that's where those European empires either had a contractual agreement for trade or a trade agreement with those said West African nations or they had colonies. And they also took their European convicts over to these West African colonies or where they were doing business and they had them work in the factories or if they had uh, military experience, they built the ports. And the English was not the first to do it. As a matter of fact, it was the Portuguese coming up out of West Africa where they did the same. They sent their convicts over to Africa as well. And then they shipped folks out of North Africa to up to their other colonies around the world and in uh, South America. Okay, so the transatlantic slave trade was worldwide. Okay, even the portion that they're telling you about Africa, the official narrative that they're giving you is incorrect. All right, so 
I hope that this was not confusing, uh, but excellent work by the author, uh, Maxwell Stewart, Hamish Maxwell Stewart out of Tasmania. Excellent, excellent work. Uh, much respect, much respect. I will be uh, getting into his other works as well. It is much appreciated. So I want to thank you all, family, on this Monday. Uh, this is Rhonda with WTUZ Radio Podcast. And I also want to encourage uh, the family, if you are not subscribed to us, to, to subscribe, like, and share. And then just as bonus material, I am going to add the pictures of who those earlier European kings and queens and inhabitants were in Europe. Just as a reminder, okay? So wishing everyone well, family. Peace and love.